Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. This is episode number 26, AI Apples. Good afternoon, Chris. How is it going today? It's going well. How's everything with you? It is. It's fine. Uh, I did go for a bike ride to try to get some vitamin D in the sunshine. It's one of those weird days where it started off kind of sunny, cloudy. It was perfect weather. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. I hit a stretch and then it started sleet raining. I didn't even see a cloud in the sky. I don't even know how it's possible. Went down to Sandy Beach in Calgary and then it was just hot as balls. And then I got a coffee and then it was like cold and rainy again. And then I came back and then now it's perfect. So it was a very strange uh, bike ride, but it was a good, it was a good workout nonetheless. Uh, we have a few things on the agenda today. I have a feeling this may be a significantly longer episode since we have a fairly large discussion about uh, the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference, which was once again online this year. But I figured we would start with our EdTech office hours. So this is the time of the year, as you and I know, where uh, the academic stuff is starting to wrap up. So I'm not getting quite as many requests or questions about technology. So I'm taking on some uh, broader ones today. So the first one is, what are the best ways to get started with automation? Was a question I had from somebody who's doesn't want to be a programmer, uh, but was interested in automating tasks and stuff like that. So I don't know, Chris, have you worked with automation with your students or done that in creativity? I was going to ask you before we get started. Uh, no, but I have done it in our um, uh, technology for entrepreneurs uh, uh, in that um, uh, technologies of innovation course where the students look at the various uh, technological tools that are available. So uh, I know uh, one, a couple of the things that I uh, get the students to experiment with is Zapier and Airtable, which are really yeah. powerful tools. Um, so uh, I'm not sure how uh, maybe there might be a way to even uh, from an educator standpoint, uh, look at using those as well. Zapier is a really good one. I didn't put it on my list because I'm not as familiar using it. Um, is it it's all cloud based, isn't it? Is it cloud based or is there a local setup? To my knowledge, it's cloud-based, um, uh, but okay. again, no, I, I've just used it as a uh, tool where we go and create uh, things like Twitter bots and stuff, uh, mm -hmm. just to show people the, the potential of uh, automating some of those tasks. Yeah. So it's it's hard to say what, uh, when someone, so someone asked me this broadly, I want to get started with automation. So it's a tough, it's a tough question to answer because I don't know what they want to build. So um I'm just going to recommend a couple of things. Uh, Zapier would be up there. I haven't worked with it personally, but it is a, a great platform. Uh, it basically allows you, I guess if I was to, uh, and correct me, Chris, if I'm perhaps defining this wrong, but the way I think about automation is obviously automating tasks. And there's usually some sort of central technology or something, uh, interim, some middleman technology, for lack of a better word, that allows you to connect uh, many of the other apps that we use. So the one that, uh, is maybe the easiest to get started with is IFTTT, which is if this, then that. It's IFTTT.com. 
it's totally free. There is a paid tier, but you I've never used the paid tier to get really into the programming aspect and to build my own automations. They have a huge gallery of automations that you can use. Uh, so I thought I would just give a couple of examples of what I do. So one semester, for instance, I wanted to track how many hours a day I spent at the Mount Royal campus versus home. So I had uh, an automation tool. I gave, I used IFTTT. I gave, I downloaded the app on my phone, and I gave it permission uh, to use my location in very certain instances. So I drew a geofence, just like you would on a map, around Mount Royal. Every time I entered that area, IFTTT would count it. It would put a timestamp in a Google spreadsheet in one column, and then when I left the area on the same row but in a different column, it would it would say when I left. And then it calculated on the third column how many hours, like what is the delta, what is the difference. Uh, so that would allow me to track how much time I spent at the university, which was a concerningly large amount of time. That was a terrible uh, revealing experiment, but a good use of automation. Another thing that I do is that I talked about this in the past is that I save a lot of articles to a, a, a service called Pinboard. Uh, you could use something like Pocket. There's all sorts of article saving platforms. I don't like to spend time on social media. I've gotten a lot of crap on social media in the past. So what I do is I automate the process. I find articles that I would make public on Pinboard, I make public on Twitter. So hidden articles, some of them are private, some of them are read later, those don't get tweeted. But everything that's public and read, it just, it just auto-tweets. It doesn't add any hashtags. It doesn't do anything useful. Uh, so I'm not getting, I'm not do, do doing it to get traffic. It just auto-tweets them. So it automates that process. And then people follow me because I do, it's almost only technology. Um, so that would be the Zapier, IFTTT, or the probably the best cross-platform automation tools that I know of. If you're in the Apple ecosystem, and again, I use Apple, Chris and I both use Apple, but I try not to be too... Uh, dominant on the Apple side, because I know a lot of people use Windows. I use a Windows uh, environment at work. Uh, but if you are in the Apple ecosystem, um, I would actually get started before it goes away uh, with Apple's Automator on the Mac. That is a fantastic tool. And macOS10automation.com, I can put that in the show notes, it was done by uh, Sal Segoyan who used to work at Apple and then he was eventually let go, unfortunately. And uh, he does some examples of all the things he can do with automation using iWork, uh, just unbelievable, the voice command automation that's built into macOS and some of the built-in apps. Uh, but I also recommend iOS shortcuts, which uh, is also going to come to the Mac with the new macOS. So um, great apps, shortcuts is great. It's a little bit more simplistic. Apple Automator is a little bit more powerful. Uh, you can use Apple Script. I don't know how long Apple Script's going to be around at this rate, but it is a very easy to use programming language. It's almost like natural language. It's really, really quite incredible. Uh, and occasionally, I actually have an automation, a really simple one. It's a desktop app, and I just it's on my desktop. I double-click it, and it opens all of the documents for a certain research project all at once. Just it's just a just it really, but it saves me a lot of time from having to go into folders because it, it, I don't want to choose them from my folder structure. So little things like that, uh, automation can be fun. The other question I got, um, which was maybe not as much of a tech question, but perhaps as a technological solution, was someone asked me, I'm surprised they asked me, but what are your tips for getting into the habit of writing every day? 
so writing every day is something that Cal Newport and a bunch of other academics talk about as a really good practice to not only improve your writing. It doesn't have to be public, by the way. It could just be writing, the act of writing something every day. Um, it has been shown to improve writing and also make people more confident if they want to do more research. And they're, This is really common uh, in, in education, in higher education, when people have a more teaching-centric position and they want to do some more research. It's super intimidating. I have published articles through the peer review process. It never gets any easier. But I do find writing every day and just getting the habit of getting ideas down and not scrutinizing too much if they're good or not is a good practice. So I do have a couple of suggestions for what people could use. Uh, I do have a journal. I've had a journal for years. Um, I used to get made fun of a lot. Everyone used to call me a Dear Diary Eric when I was in library school, which is pretty funny. <laughs> uh, I used to write out my journal in on hand, and I like that. I like writing, but I take a lot of notes by hand, but I don't find journaling by hand is very helpful because it doesn't keep up with my stream of consciousness. So I use a program that has a paid tier, also a free tier. I use the paid, so it syncs across everything, but the, if you're using one device, the free one is fine. It's called Day One. It's an excellent journaling app. There's some other options, uh, Journey, Penzu, Dalio, uh, Grid Diary. I'll put these in the show notes. Um, really good journaling apps. It, they can set reminders to get you to journal, write down your thoughts uh, about anything. You can have multiple journals. You can do that every day. If your goal is to write every day to do blogging, that's a little bit more difficult. And I feel like a bit of a fraud to give people advice on this because I have not published a article on my Tech Bytes blog, which I've had for now almost eight years um, since December 2020. Uh, for a reason, I deliberately put it to the side. So uh, my advice would be to set up some sort of accountability system. It could be Jerry Seinfeld's Don't Break the Chain by blogging, you know, once a week. Uh, if you do want to get into writing, my big suggestion, and you want to write regularly, my big suggestion would be to make sure that the bar is set low enough. And that seems a bit counterintuitive. But if you say, I'm going to publish a blog post every day, it's not going to happen because it takes too long. Maybe start, I'm going to publish a blog post every month. I'm going to write an article. I'm going to publish it. 12 articles a year is pretty good. Or if you say, I'm going to do it once a week and try to schedule it so it's always the same time every week so you have accountability pressure and set up reminders and calendars and tell people to remind you so you have some sort of accountability system. Uh, that's the, one of the reasons why I do research almost exclusively with other people. I do do solo research occasionally, but uh, if I have to finish a draft, I'm accountable to somebody else so that I find that really helpful. I would also recommend that your blog doesn't have to be world famous to get a lot of satisfaction out of writing. Don't look at metrics. Don't compare how many blog traffics you get. Don't set up ads on your site expecting to make a ton of money. I get tens and tens of thousands of hits on my blog. I still make no money hardly from Google ads. I make maybe a hundred dollars a year. It's not a lucrative business, but I enjoy doing it and I get good comments and I've made contacts. I would say that uh, the best way to get bang for your buck in terms of satisfaction out of daily writing would be to share it in other places. So always have a website. If it's private, then this doesn't matter. But if it's a website like WordPress or Squarespace, if you have a blog and you do want people to see it, also redistribute it. You can import stories to platforms like Medium and then you can share it with other people. You can post it on other publications. I just wrote one called Bootstrapping an Education Podcast with Chris and we published it on our EdTech Examined Medium it's also, I posted it, uh, you know, a snippet of it on my website. I tend to share things broadly. So I think that gives you a lot of satisfaction. I hope that answers that person's question. 
uh, are writing every day. They're just strategies that I've used. Uh, there's lots of them out there. Uh, and I would recommend taking a look at some of our productivity book recommendations like Cal Newport and others because they talk about the value of writing. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. So um, other than that, I think we'll go quickly into uh, the news. So we have four news articles today. Uh, we don't have a huge number of them. Um, I'll save the, well, let's start with the air tags. So Chris, would you mind giving folks a recap on what the air tags were from the last Apple event? Yeah, so basically the air tags were similar to uh, an app or a hardware device like uh, Tile, where you would be able to go and geolocate using the Apple ecosystem and uh, GPS where something might be in the Again, uh, we've kind of talked about this the last time, but, um, you know, this was technology that Apple has. Uh, uh, it was actually a Toronto based company based off of their beacon technology. And um, they've successfully actually implemented it in the Apple stores where you can go and locate a product. And then now they've taken it and, uh, you know, put it out into the world. So as simple as let's say if it was your wallet or your keys. Um, or maybe even your phone, but uh, you can actually go and, uh, you know, find it, have it uh, alert uh, yourself as well, um, but it, it, you can track it down. And when we talked about this before, the concern that Apple tried to remedy was that you couldn't just, you know, place this in someone's back pocket and you'd be able to trace them all over. It did have some sort of, it's supposed, these air tags, these tracking pucks, these little discs were supposed to have some sort of... Um, backup so it would it would turn itself off or it would alert the person that it was nearby if uh, AirTag like left connection to your own device or something like that yeah they, they tried to because you and i talked about how are we not going to have people throwing these in the backpacks of students in university and so there was actually but there was an article in the washington post that said it was shockingly easy to track someone with the airpods so this is by jeffrey fowler from the washington post i'm looking at the summary from Mac rumors, but, um, it says Fowler planted an air tag on himself and teamed up with a colleague to pretend stalked. And he came to the conclusion that the air tags are a new means of inexpensive, effective stalking. Apple's safeguards include privacy alerts to let iPhone users know that an unknown air tag is traveling with them and maybe in their belongings, along with regular sound alerts when an air tag has been separated from the owner for three days. Three days is a long time before you have to alert somebody that they've been tracked for 36 hours, in my opinion, but so be it. Um, Fowler said that over a week of tracking, he received alerts both from the hidden AirTag and from his iPhone. After three days, the AirTag being used to stalk Fowler, he knew about this, played a sound, but it was just 15 seconds of light chirping. So I guess it has a speaker in it, maybe has something so you can find it. And that measured in at about 60 decibels, which is not very high, so it would be tough to hear. It played for 15 seconds at a time, went silent for several hours, and then chirped for another 15 seconds, and uh, was easy to muffle by applying pressure to the air tag. The three-day countdown timer resets after it comes in contact with the owner's iPhone, so if the person being stalked lives near their stalker, the sound might never activate. And basically... It was really easy to muffle this thing, and they found out that it was actually really easy to use the air tags to just follow somebody. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I guess even if you think about it just critically, um, 
What about if the person isn't on the Apple ecosystem? You may not even be able to get the notification if you're not if you don't have an iPhone. How would you even know? Well, I think that's what the chirping does. So I guess I, I don't. I'm assuming that there must be some sort of teeny tiny speaker in the AirTag for allow it to make sound. Yeah. But 60 decibels is like, I mean, for instance, 80 decibels would be like the equivalent of conversation in a restaurant. Yeah, not super. So I mean. 60 decibels wouldn't be hard to overshadow uh, in terms of sound by any means. Uh, in fact, most environments, I mean, if you had it in someone's backpack, for instance, I told you I was cycling today, there's no way I would have heard it if it was buried under a sweater or a hidden pocket in the bottom of my backpack. Yeah. So it, it, like you said, but and that's assuming that it leaves the vicinity, right, of the person that's being stalked. So I don't know how far the distance is, but like if you were trying to f track someone who lived across the street, it may hardly ever go off or send an alert. So if they had an Android phone, they certainly wouldn't get an alert, right? Because it's not an, I it's not an iOS device. So this has become now a problem of the walled garden. It doesn't notify any phone nearby, as far as I understand. Plus, if it's close enough to you, it doesn't signal that you've left... Uh, the vicinity. So like if I want to stalk somebody across the, uh, the the hallway in my condo, it would never go off. Yeah. Well, imagine it's crazy. It, it might not even be somebody that's a complete stranger, right? Like, I mean, let's say if you wanted to go and, uh, you know, stalk your wife and just see what she's up to, I'm sure, you know, you're probably going to contact her within those uh, 72 hours every so often. Though we already give each other location access, so I guess I don't know what that would do. I guess if she said she was going somewhere, but she was really going somewhere else, she's totally going to hear this podcast and be like, what are you talking about? But <laughs> it's, an it's, it's just interesting to me how easy it was. This is, uh, I think, something that, I mean, I just came across as a random, but I wanted to highlight it because I think the AirTags are super cool. I think if you have keys and you don't want to lose them or you want to put it in your own backpack, so you, like... At a school environment, think how many people have an almost identical looking Janssen backpack or Herschel supply or something like that. Like it makes sense, right? Um, I've seen people a lot, or you maybe everyone has a, the same looking MacBook. We have all these commodity technologies. So being able to track your stuff um, is a good idea. It's much better than the Eric stickers that I put on things that I own. I bought this pack of stickers that have my name spelled properly and I stick those on things that I'm going to peel off a sticker, right? So this is a great idea, but it's, uh, it opens up a door for, uh, privacy problems. It's one thing to invade someone's privacy by getting access to their stuff because they've left it. It's another thing to follow them around because you put literally a Batman style tracking tag on them. So I think it's, um, I don't know how Apple's the privacy company, allegedly, so they're going to have to deal with this somehow. Yeah, and I mean, those are always uh, some of the concerns. I mean, uh, with anything that there's, uh, there's going to be positives and you got to see if uh, the positives outweigh the negatives. And I mean, I looked uh, when we talked about it last time, imagine if you have like a, an expensive uh, bicycle. I mean, I would probably put it in the frame of the bicycle and just leave it in there because they get stolen all the time. Right. And yeah. uh, it's a fairly inexpensive way of tracking, especially given that it lasts for a year with that one battery. Right. And it's a replaceable battery, which was good to hear. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, we have another article. This is from the Toronto Star. This was published on June 6th. 
It's called a blend of in-person and online learning is becoming the norm post-pandemic. Uh, let's make it work. Um, the article is written by um, Karen Bersidi and basically discusses um, the desire for students to continue to have a flexible learning environment. Uh, and I think a lot of this is inspired by uh, people who live in the greater Toronto area who have a considerable commute. I think it's, he said, uh, a major 2019 study, Student Move 2, found that 30% of uh, greater Toronto area college and university students have a one-way commute time to campus of one hour or more. Uh, I don't know what the median time was, but the average, so the mean one-way commute was 46 minutes or about 14 and 14 and a half kilometers. Um, so meanwhile, a surprising number aren't just dealing with online learning. They say they prefer it. Uh, so this doesn't surprise me. Um, he also quotes some information from Alex Usher, who writes a newsletter that's interesting called Higher Education Strategy Associates, uh, which is a regular blog post. Sometimes what Alex writes, I really like. Sometimes I find it really frustrating. But he also points this out, desire for flexibility. This doesn't say anything that you and I haven't already talked about. I guess my question, Chris, and what I was kind of curious to know what you would think, is that while this is true, I have also read just as many, I have read more than one article like this. I've read just as many articles that say, I hate online learning, it's lonely, I miss the social connection, I like traveling to campus, I like going somewhere to be accountable. So what's the solution to this? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't even know if uh, given how universities and just how their bureaucratic systems are in place, I, I don't know if what can happen. But I mean, uh, one thing I'll tell you personally, there's one of my courses that I'm teaching. Uh, you know, uh, I actually have the ability to make it um, based on my own pedagogical approach. I can go and make it, uh, you know, a blended course. So, you know, and what I'm thinking is probably I'll have uh, points uh, throughout the semester, like, this, uh, you know, starting off with uh, in the beginning of the, of the first class, then probably, uh, you know, maybe a meeting every week. I mean, not every week, every month. Uh, so it's a one week or uh, a three hour course once a week uh, for 13 weeks. And so I'm thinking basically we'll meet uh, and get together for, uh, you know, once a month uh, at the minimum. If we need to, we can probably uh, increase it. But uh, that way, especially given when it's late at night, like this course is at seven o'clock. Uh, I don't know if uh, just based on my experience, I've seen a number of students, they just... Um, Sometimes they just don't show up even, right? Or, or even if they are there, it's just, it becomes a little bit uh, difficult. And then it runs until 9.45. Then you got to, if uh, let's say you talked about the median kind of, uh, you know, commuting time. Well, now you get home at 11 o'clock and, and then you got, who knows, uh, maybe um, it'll probably disrupt your sleep or whatever. But I, I think certainly that flexibility w would help. Um, you know, I, and I don't know what the best way, because even uh, I'll, I'll tell you, just even dealing with the students, if you give them too many options, it becomes difficult as well. Right? It, uh, and you'll never get consensus. So it's it's almost like you got to go and uh, give them that structure and just dictate how it's going to be uh, done. But um, yeah, I mean, if uh, I'm actually even thinking for that same course, I'm probably going to leave the classroom there booked. 
And so that if, if there are students, because I know for a fact that there will be some uh, that are taking an engineering course, if they don't have time to get home, maybe they can just go to the classroom and at least uh, not have it, uh, you know, have to struggle to find a place to study. And if we do do a synchronous online session, but yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know. It's uh, it, even we've talked about it, like this last uh, year, it's kind of been either people, you know, were very uh, successful and thrived in the online environment or they barely even survived or even like, you know, totally uh, failed. In the, and, you know, there was even situations where people, I think, again, even you look at like the suicide rates and other things, it's um, uh, I think the uh, depression and the uh, sort of uh, the, the social side the mental health side. I mean, that's something that who knows? Um, I mean, I've even been watching some TV shows as of late where they have been talking about, uh, you know, going back to the real world and schools going back and, uh, and then they just show how uh, students are actually getting some anxiety and don't want to go back. And, you know, they actually enjoyed being with their parents and having all their loved ones at home and having that support network. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what that uh, best um, kind of approach would be, but uh, what I would hope in the future, which I don't know if it's going to happen in the next uh, near short term, but um, if you can make it where it's optional and you could basically, uh, who knows, maybe in the future, we'll actually have video conferencing uh, built right into every classroom. And so then you have the option of uh, either being present physically or you can just dial in. It's an interesting solution. I, I do like the idea of having lecture capture and video conferencing in classrooms, if the very least, just so every classroom that's booked can be used for either or, right? I mean, like um, cameras and quality don't go out as, of date. That kind of infrastructure doesn't go out of date nearly as fast as it used to. So I don't think it would be a, a terrible investment. It also highlights the difference. I mean, like you don't get the same outcome between different groups, right? I mean, like you said, some people are thrive in that environment and some people don't right and um it's interesting um i wonder if there'll be a push more to change institutions that have historically been face-to-face -to, -face to be more online or if people will gravitate towards online institutions for the totally online piece i should say uh that historically do that work better I mean, I, I hope that Athabasca University, and for those who don't know, it's our online uh, distance education school. It's a big university. It's a comprehensive research institution. I, I know great people. They really know what they're doing in terms of teaching online. I hope they're doing gangbusters for people who really like that because it is a good school and they have really good programs and it's affordable and it's flexible. And they've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, like we've talked about this before, like there's that uh, professor, Scott Galloway from NYU. And I mean, he was even on Bill Maher uh, a little while ago and stuff. And uh, I think the, the issue, especially in the U.S. where the tuition is so expensive, it, it just becomes difficult to go and justify, uh, you know, if you're spending thousands of dollars. Like literally, if I in his class, he talks about it, and he's created an ed tech startup of his own where he's delivering classes at a fraction of what he charges for his MBA uh, courses. But he's getting paid thousands of dollars per lecture, per student, just for, you know, showing up for a couple of hours or whatever, three hours. 
And so, uh, yeah. again, I think that's where, um, you know, we might have to go and think about like, what is that, uh, you know, value add? And I mean, certainly that networking side of things, uh, although everybody says that, okay, well, it doesn't happen, you know, uh, where you need to be able to see them in person and have these collisions and, and that kind of thing. I mean, it, I look at a lot of these companies, especially the uh, many tech companies have now gone remote completely. And so how are they going and facilitating it? So I think it's it's almost a bit of an excuse. You have to go and create some way that you can uh, interact with others, right? It's uh, if you want to have some of those collisions or what have you. But certainly if I'm a young person and, uh, you know, want to have that um, uh, camaraderie, uh, I don't know, just a... In terms of that connection with uh, fellow classmates and who knows especially given that age group right it's uh, they really a lot of them are there for the social aspect and uh, i think bill marr talked about this and in some ways our, our schools are <laughs> He's not paying like daycares, for that right overhand daycares <laughs> with very expensive babysitters yes he did mention that I, he makes a good point about some of the institutions in the united states that have some of the largest water parks we don't quite have that over here in Alberta or anywhere in Canada that I know of. They really are uh, more made for learning. I've never heard of a water park here or a lazy river. Though that sounds kind of fun. It is interesting. It highlights a bigger thing. Remember Steve Jobs was famous for not wanting too many bathrooms installed. I think this is even before the Apple Spaceship Campus was built, but even in the old campus. Because the idea is, is that... He wanted, kind of like you said earlier, fewer options for people to congregate. So they would be bumping into each other. And he said, that's where the really good ideas came from. And he used to highlight this all the time. Like this feature that everyone takes for granted was a total accident. Two people were going, they were in line and like one, you know, Apple had one cafeteria. They didn't have four, like the Google campus. You had to wait in line and talk to people. And it was done by design. And he said, this is a, a example of a feature that was designed because two people were talking while they're waiting in line to pay for their lunch. And he talked about that. I don't know how you replicate that online. I certainly have heard from a great many colleagues across Canada saying that, you know, while they're efficient at working at home, they're not generating a lot of new ideas or initiatives or not as much because there is no serendipity of bumping into each other. So it is an interesting balance. Um, how you make that happen. Do you have to be there all the time to do that? Uh, it's a good question. That was the whole idea of the Apple campus being a circle that you'd have to walk around to get to certain things and you would talk to people. Um, yeah, it, it, it'll come down to personality. I'm sure. Yeah. Although it's kind of funny because, uh, Apple, I mean, what was it? A couple of weeks ago, there was an article that came out and, um, I mean, Apple has spent $5 billion on this, uh, Apple campus and, the employees don't want to go back. <laughs> they don't want to go to, you know, uh, in, back into the office. And in fact, they actually ba banded together and drafted a letter that was sent to Apple management that got leaked out to The Verge talking about... Well, some of them uh, and it was, uh, wrote that. Yeah, not, a couple of yeah, not everybody, but yeah, yeah. but there was, there was quite a, a few that actually went and did that. And I mean, I, I can appreciate it. I mean, I look at it even for myself. It's uh, I don't think I would have been able to just even schedule wise and, um, you know, time wise, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did this past year if it wasn't for being online because uh, just the commuting every day, I save two hours a day, right? Just from commuting well, and, uh, you know, 
Yeah. And I think, I think working in Silicon Valley is actually, actually does have a, a good comparison to people who work in higher ed who are on contract. There is a high percentage, people might not know this, of programmers who work for Google and Apple who are not permanent employees. They work on contract. They do projects at Salesforce at the same time, though there's some non-compete. They can't work for Google on the same competing project while working for Apple and some stuff like that. But in universities, like Chris, like you teach at multiple institutions. So I think a lot of the people who don't want to be uh, on university campuses uh, or on tech company campuses all the time are a lot of the time people who work on contract or choose to work on contract because they like that flexibility. So I think that has to be taken into account. I think a lot of the people who do want to go back to places are full time and then they've kind of drawn a box around where they work and where they don't. Um, and I think that's that maybe is a conversation that we have to have because I think it's not fair to create the same standards for people who bounce around. And some people do that by choice. I'm not saying that everyone's trapped in contract. Some people don't like it and they want to be permanent, but some people do like to be on contract, but then why would you make them stay there all day and not give them that flexibility? Right. And in higher education, there's like anywhere from 30 to 50 to 60% of the instructors are, are contract. Um, so it, it would make sense why you would do that based on circumstance. Um, we have a couple of other news articles. One of them is more of a fun thing. Uh, it was kind of a follow-up because we talked to Tony Chaston. That seemed like ages ago. I think it was in the fall. Uh, Tony's a psychology professor at Mount Royal University. He's teaching this fall, teaching the first totally in VR course at Mount Royal. And I am proud to have worked with Tony on the project. I mean, he's done all the work. I'm more just consulting and bouncing ideas off him. I met with him yesterday. So that's Friday. We're recording this on a Saturday uh, to see the finished virtual world he built his main classroom, which is this beautiful park with a beautiful 360 skybox image that he uh, took when he was in Kananaskis in the mountains and stuff like that. It's really interesting to see. Um, but this is an article from Wired called Geology Students Did Field uh, did video game field work during COVID and it rocked. So geology is a field where you often do field work and you have to literally go into the bush. And I'm sure that that will continue when things go face to face. But during the pandemic, they're trying to figure out how are we going to get this valuable field work in for geology, which is pretty integral to the degree. And uh, it's really interesting because uh, Matthew Gang, so he's a planetary scientist in Imperial College, um, he kind of had an epiphany about when he had to pivot in March, 2020, about 10 years earlier, he had happened to take up video game design, just kind of as a hobby, you know, working with unity or virtual worlds and things like that. The article says that one of his colleagues, fellow ICL geoscientist, Mark Sutton, all, uh, had also been dabbling in the same digital sandbox. So they decided to put their skills to pedagogical use. They built video game versions of the field trips their undergraduate students would normally go on where they could practice the same techniques and learn about the planet in the same way they would in the real world. It started with a 3D replica of Sardinia uh, and Mount Atena in Sicily, where the students galvanated about looking for ancient fossils, prodding volcanic rocks, and exploring an abandoned silver mine. Uh, but like all good video games, things escalated quickly. Before long, students were piloting spaceships, fending off hostile fighters, and trying to find a good place to land on an asteroid to study chemistry. And that seems like gamification, though I have to say, 
as a longtime video game player, uh, not obsessive, but online virtual worlds, I think there's a lot of benefit to virtual environments, um, either to prep people for going to the real thing or to take them to environments you'd never be able to. I've been playing video games for years, especially cooperative games. You have to work with other people. I play online every Thursday with some colleagues. We play this um, game called State of Decay, which is a third person base building uh, zombie apocalypse. You have to like, you know, recruit people and defend them and find food and take care of people. And then it's tons of strategy, right? But it's really interesting because it teaches you about orienteering, uh, placing check marks, thinking about infrastructure, how many pallets does it take to build X? This is really cool. And I have a colleague in, in Mount Royal Library, um, Chris Thomas, who with his colleague, Jeremy Clyde, at the University of Calgary, originally did gamification for information literacy teaching. So I think there's a lot of stuff here. I, was I did a presentation recently with Tony uh, at the True North Science Bootcamp Conference, which I was uh, very, very grateful. I was invited to speak with him about this. And uh, we were just giving people kind of an overview of VR and where it's where it is. And there's an entire project. Um, is it the, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Of course, it's escaped me. I'll put it in the show notes. Arctic project, Arctic, basically, uh, photogrammetry, meaning that they f did photo, uh, 3d digital scans of historical areas. And you can view them on your computer, but you can also view them in VR, like all these historical places, so many places in the Middle East, and some of them that are not even there anymore, uh, that have been scanned. So you can go view them. I mean, or, or taking people to Mars, um, uh, because the rovers have used again, photogrammetry to, to photograph in 3d, the environment on the lunar landscape, you can't take people to Mars. You'd never, even if you could, you never get the ethics to do it, to take them on that kind of a field trip. So I think there's so much potential in terms of uh, digital learning, even if you, you do want people to go into the real world and the feet, because they're going to eventually have to gather samples as geologists, but it's a really great prep. I think there's huge potential uh, here. I saw this years ago when I worked with dentistry students doing instructional design and they were practicing in VR with haptics, drilling virtual teeth. And people thought this was crazy, but it translated really well to them actually practicing on then dummies and real people. Their progress skyrocketed as a result of just being real enough, just comfortable enough to work with the tools and get a feel for them. Uh, this is just a really interesting article talking about how they were able to get people to do field work in COVID. And I, I hope the trend continues. And I, I think for certain disciplines, for sure, it's, it's been happening for a while. I think we talked about this uh, maybe for an, uh, an upcoming interview that's going to be coming. But um, like in the medicine field, like you talk about even dentistry, but uh, you know, in the medicine field, there's how many chances are you going to get at certain procedures and you can just try it out uh, virtually or mm -hmm. even, you know, let's say if you had to take your full class of, um, you know, medical students into an ambulance and see what it looks like uh, or into an ER or something, uh, especially in the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, they had to go and find some ways around it. And but I, I don't see why you wouldn't continue it in the future, especially, you know, when you look at the K to 12, just getting permission 
I mean, I remember back in the day we went, um, you know, uh, in the mountains for like, you know, camping as part of a, a field trip. Yeah, we do that too. That's and, fun. And now I bet you it, it probably isn't allowed, right? <laughs> or, or you'd have to basically sign off a, every kind of, uh, you know, just liability waiver, uh, you know, on behalf of uh, parents. But it, it's just becoming that much more difficult or even going to the science center, right? It's just, and then the costs are going up as well. So, yeah, but... I love it. I, I think VR has a huge future in education. I mean, I, there's something about it. Having been in it and having been a previous skeptic, it kind of it kind of turned me. Uh, we have one more news article. These are really in-depth. Uh, this is an article from Fast Company. This, Chris, struck me because it's kind of what you've been talking about for a long time, which is AI ethics. Uh, it's called Google Plans to Bring AI to Education to Make Its Dominance in Classrooms more alarming now it's a good article i say ben williamson wrote a little bit of a clickbait title in my opinion uh the intention i'm sure from google isn't to make it more alarming but the article talks a little bit about some of the directions from google and things that sundar pachai has said so uh, i'll read you the introduction so when google ceo sundar pachai addressed the company's annual io developers conference on may 18th 2021 so just last month he made two announcements suggesting Google is now the world's most powerful organization in education. I mean, it was pretty a powerful uh, announcement to make. Opening the live stream keynote from the Mountain View campus garden, Pachai celebrated how Google had been able to help students and teachers continue learning from anywhere during the pandemic. So they're really leveraging the fact that Google schools benefited from using Google things when they were separated. Minutes later, he announced Google's new AI language platform, a central part of the company's long-term AI strategy, with a specific use case example from education, Lambda, which is L, small case A, capital M, capital D, capital A, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. He claimed could enable students to ask natural language questions and received sensible, factual, and interesting conversational responses. This seems a lot like every digital assistant that we've had for 10 years. He says, so if a so this is Pachai being quoted. So if a student wanted to discover more about space, Pachai wrote on the company blog, the model would give sensible responses, making learning even more fun and engaging. If that student then wanted to switch over to a different topic, he added, Lambda could continue the conversation without any retraining. The company plans to embed Lambda in its workspace suite of cloud computing software tools and products, which would make sense because a lot of these voice tools have found their way into Chrome books and the Chrome browser and all sorts of stuff. So the, the article goes on to discuss uh, their use of Google Classroom, which is their kind of backdoor sneak attack LMS, which competes with Blackboard, Canva, all the other learning management systems that educational institutions tend to use. Um, but there's another aspect of this about privacy, which I wanted to highlight. So the steady expansion of Google's reach in education has always been highly controversial. Five years ago, nonprofit digital liberties organization, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which has a lot of really good stuff, filed an official complaint with the Federal Trade Commission against Google for collecting and mining school children's personal information from Chromebooks and Google Apps for Education without permission or opt-in options. So this is the big concern. There's not a lot of opt-out or opt-in for this stuff. 
Uh, that goes on to say that controversies over data collection and sharing are likely to intensify with the expansion of Google Classroom. Research published by a team from universities in Australia and the UK, to which I contributed recently, this is the author, not me, highlighted how hundreds of external education technology providers are integrated into Classroom. So I think the person's referring to the third-party plugins, potentially enabling Google to extend its data extraction practices far beyond the platform. The roadmap for Classroom confirms its plans to extend these integrations through a marketplace so like the web store for Chrome, of a classroom add-ons that teachers could then assign without requiring extra students' login. The, the make, this makes Classroom itself the main gateway for students to access other Google resources. So the article talks a bit about techno-ethical eth, techno auditing, as they say, uh, because one of the concerns is, is that especially outside of higher ed, K-12, you're dealing with really young kids who have no idea what data collection is. Well, and, you know, having used Google Classrooms, and I, I don't know if, um, if you've had a chance, Eric, but uh, it's just as a LMS itself, I would say they, you know, they've done an awesome job of reinventing how you can go and manage, uh, you know, people's learning. And it's, it's just the interface itself is, is just a completely different um, and, you know, I've simpler to use. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a modern kind of take. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess you would not uh, you wouldn't expect anything less than from a company like Google. But, you know, I personally I've used three different um, learning management systems, just given the the different uh, academic institutions so i've used blackboard for a long time d2l desire to learn and also moodle and i have to say by far google classroom is probably the best out of those three and it's free yeah especially now well yeah. it's free i don't know if the university do, do we pay google for being a google campus we must pay them something I, I'm sure we do, uh, just in terms of the, the the overall, like the the G Suite and stuff. But I believe even if you don't have a, a Gmail account, I, I believe they actually are giving it away for free still to anybody. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just simple things like even uh, let's say, for example, I set up a quiz or some type of assignment it actually sends out an alert to the students and then, you know, reminds them that it's due and, and so on. And just, um, uh, I think even just the way that it tracks uh, some of the, um, you know, grading and other things. But I, it's funny because you mentioned this about the third party apps. I was looking at, because there's obviously certain functionality that the classroom, uh, Google Classroom has uh, embedded within it. And I was looking at some other things that I wanted to do because uh, obviously it's, uh, there's things that you let's say for example um you know randomizing a google form for quiz purposes and, and so on so unfortunately google classrooms doesn't have that built in but uh, you can go and embed a third-party app when i started looking at the terms and conditions basically i would have to allow that third-party access to everything even in my email like the actual email account and so at that point i'm i just backed out of it and i didn't uh, you know follow through with it but how many people are actually going to go and read through all the terms and conditions i mean i've read um, somewhere somebody's done research on this if you every year if you had to go and read through all the terms and conditions of every you know technological device that you're you know uh, interfacing with from software hardware it would take you years just to read everything and so nobody does was that um 
the Big Nine book, or was that the Age of Surveillance Capitalism? I thought it was from one of those. It's, I think it's one of those. I, I can't remember. But it, uh, again, there has been research studies done on this where it would literally take you years just to go and read through all that stuff if you actually yeah. had to. It's brutal. Um, there's a great extension. I don't know if you use it for, um, I think most of the browsers, it's called Terms of Service Didn't Read. <laughs> you can get it from uh, a great, if you want privacy extensions, just go to privacytools.io, folks. I put it in the show notes before I can do it again. But uh, basically, if you come across a site that has a Terms of Service, especially that's built into that, I agree to all cookies that we have to do for every website, thanks to the European Union. Um, it basically says, it gives you the coal notes, Cole's notes, uh, the summary of what their super long Terms of Service is. But yeah, you're not going to get that for a plug-in on a, on a platform. There's no way. Um, should we move on to our discussion item? of wwdc absolutely this is this is the main event <laughs> this is the main event so how did you want to work this did you want to go through i could go through systematically or should we just pick things out of each section that are interesting there was a lot of announcements made well i think we could probably just go through uh, in terms of how uh, you have it laid out uh, it might take us you know, my, our apologies to the people who are listening. This might become even a three-hour episode. Who knows? Well, how about I'll start with FaceTime and we'll alternate each section. How's that? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Okay. And uh, so we'll just go back and forth and we'll just jump in. So face, So uh, we're going to start with iOS changes. So we're going to start with iOS and we'll, inter- we'll go back and forth between each section. Then we're going to go to iPad. Then, no, no, I'm wrong. Then we're going to go to uh, AirPods. Uh, we'll cover that in uh, uh, iOS. Then we're going to go to iPadOS. And then we're going to go to macOS. Uh, so some of these are going to be similar. Uh, so the first thing that came with iOS, uh, the updates to FaceTime. Actually, I thought this was pretty interesting. These were kind of a reaction to the pandemic, particularly the explosion uh, and the use of Zoom, which in my opinion is what we record our podcast on, which I think, by the way, despite the complaints against privacy and blah, 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 the company has tried to improve their security. They've made tons of feature updates. From what I can tell, uh, Zoom is by far the best video conferencing app. And I've, uh, Microsoft Teams, I would say, would be a close comparison, but nobody uses it that I know, so I use Zoom. Uh, but FaceTime, Apple's FaceTime, which I think... You know, you and I use that just to chat, audio and otherwise, it works great. But it's not really an enterprise uh, thing, and it doesn't work that well outside of the Apple environment. So they made some updates. Uh, FaceTime will now include the option to reduce background noise. So that's kind of like that, ah, oh, there's a third-party crisp or crinkle or crack, probably not crack, <laughs> that reduces background sounds. Uh, so I think it's a similar AI based thing. I mean, a background sound reduction basically looks for persistent or out of the ordinary noises. So it has some algorithms to identify and, and uh, eliminate stuff. FaceTime will also get FaceTime links. So you can send people links to FaceTime, people who are in the browser or on a different platform, and you can video conference with them over FaceTime, even if they're not an Apple user. I never thought Apple would do that. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a big game changer. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but I mean, if it was me, if I was Apple, I probably would have done this a long time ago, as well as I would have opened up iMessages as well uh, as a no, Android never app. iMessages. Right. That's the secret sauce. That's where the kids go, man. If you they want you to be the green bubble, because yeah, yeah. then you're one of the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, well, and that, and that's part of it, right? If you think about it, like in business, uh, we have this term we call them moats, and so by doing that, uh, you basically lock everybody into the ecosystem. And so maybe this is a nice way of Apple just to get people exposed, those who aren't on the Apple uh, framework, and be able to at least use FaceTime because uh, you know again, it's it's just that much easier. It's it's probably even who knows once they started improving like this background noise thing. It's um, I, I bet you it's actually, uh, you know, part and parcel with their um, uh, new iMacs where that was one of the features that they were talking about. And so now uh, who knows what they're, uh, you might even have a better way of uh, doing it if you actually have the Apple hardware and the software. Yeah. I well, and I know that the AirPods in terms of noise reduction work at least as good. As, I don't have the AirPods Pro, but I've read that they're just as good as my Bose headphones, which is pretty impressive. My Bose QC35s, which are old now by technology standards, I think 2017 I bought them, are still the best headphones I've ever owned. Um, but anyways, uh, they also uh, have a share play. <laughs> so this is kind of like that Netflix party time. Uh, you can listen to music and watch movies together. Plus, you can do screen sharing at the same time. So there, <laughs> there was a, <laughs> I can't help myself. There was a person looking at their phone with a grid of people, and then in front of their phone was like what they were watching on TV. So they were doing like a selfie FaceTime group chat. I guess they were all doing that, and they were all watching a television, watching a movie at the same time. So it's kind of like that uh, Netflix party app, yeah. except it probably works. I found that that app was garbage. It would crash. Uh, and this SharePlay API for watching experiences together is going to work with uh, other streaming services. So I didn't see Netflix, but the Apple's longtime friend Disney, Disney Plus, will work. So you can watch things together over Disney Plus. You know, and it's interesting, even this uh, Netflix party, um, uh, you know, when the pandemic began last year actually and I, I think you attended this uh, session where we had a former vice president of um, product of Netflix uh, Gibson Biddle mm -hmm. he actually we, uh, the, and that was uh, the first session that we actually did it based on 2020 Netflix uh, strategy and one of the things that we had uh, the participants the attendees look at was this Netflix party and I mean Netflix has not rolled anything out like this and I mean he has firsthand knowledge but uh, I think a lot of people don't want to talk to other people while they're watching things uh, or maybe even they might have guilty pleasures <laughs> that they don't want everybody to know about or what have you. And um, so, but it's interesting again, uh, I think that's um, certain things, especially uh, again, from like a video conferencing and a collaboration, like if uh, let's say now we needed to go and work on something together, it just makes it that much easier. Yeah, I like the collaboration for working together. I agree with you that uh, he made a really good, made a really good point that nobody wants this sharing i think it's kind of like an also we're also doing it thing from apple um <laughs> they should have done this with ibooks and then i could read my diane Steele novels with you i'm just joking i don't do that <laughs> did you want to talk about uh messages yeah sure so uh, with iMessages, uh, they've actually 
uh, changed uh, and you know uh, introduced some new functionality so for example with the photographs uh, you can actually go and send a stack of photo photos together and uh, it creates a bit of a collage it also has this uh, section where you can go and um, let's say with news and other things you can actually go and share that uh, with your contacts um, you know there's a little bit of integration as well where uh, you can see um, uh, there's an icon that comes up uh, where the pictures were contributed by uh, certain contacts or family members so I, they've just taken it and enhanced it a bit, uh, so just to make it that much easier. And I'm sure you probably have had this situation, let's say, if, I mean, I've probably done this with you before too, even Eric, where you're sending like a few pictures, but just having it kind of in that stack and organizing it and, and things and, um, you know, and then it somehow just magically gets uh, added into your um, photo library and stuff. It just, uh, this is a nice new touch. Yeah. I don't know if I want to automatically add it to my photo library. People send me a lot of junk. So I hope, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can, but I do like the stack. I mean, it, it's like email attachments in some ways. Messages is becoming more, more, you can send it. I mean, I've been sending files, PDFs and stuff to people over messages for years. I don't know how secure it is, but you and I do that over signal because it's a little bit more secure. Um, I don't know how different that is from email other than, I guess it's easy. Uh, though I find if you're behind when you're messaging with people, if you're in like a group message, like if you and Chris are messaging and I'm like a day behind and I come in and I'm just like, oh my God, there's like 166. I'm not going to read all these. Like I have no idea what went on with an email string because it's asynchronous. Maybe it's a little bit easier to catch up. It's an interesting thing that messaging apps are taking on some of the features that um, we've complained about email forever. I hope there's no exploits coming as a result of being able to push things through like actual files and stuff like that. Yeah. But see, that's where like the emergence of even things like um, uh, uh, Slack, right? And uh, even with uh, the Microsoft side of things, they have their own, um, just that instant messaging. I mean, uh, again, they're trying to, uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, we've talked about this before where people have talked uh, like people like Cal Newport and stuff. They talk about email and just, it hasn't been around that long and it's creating a whole bunch of issues, but now we're further compounding it with this instant messaging. And uh, uh, again, I think you need kind of that uninterrupted time and which it's, it's interesting with Microsoft, for example, now uh, they've actually introduced as part of, uh, especially if you're on the enterprise side of things where you can block off, and have quiet time and uh it yeah even, they're smart about that yeah and then you get even emails of how much quiet time and like they're taking uh, into account some of that um, those analytics i'm sure that those analytics are being shared with the hr people within the company as well so i don't know how much of the the tracking is going on there but i mean that that's where i think eric like really the conversation especially I, i've been chatting with a number of people lately it shouldn't be based on you know number of hours worked it, it should be based on outcomes oh absolutely i mean um i was very 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 slow to get my work done uh when i started my arts degree in international relations i had a huge writing load at ubc i mean talking like 20 30 page papers but uh, there, I found a way to do it very efficiently over time. So then rather than taking 48 hours to do a paper that long, 
I could do it in 15 hours, which doesn't seem, seems like a lot of time, but that's a huge cost savings. The outcome was just as good because I got better at it. The idea that you have to be there for a certain amount of time, regardless of how hard you work, is actually a disincentive to be efficient, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think this might be a nice segue to our next part. You want to... Ah, the notifications. Yeah. So, I mean, much like Microsoft and I, by the way, I would, ex I would assume Microsoft would do that kind of focus. It's kind of in their DNA. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, they have a focus, um, time in iOS notifications, which is essentially deep work. Uh, so some, there's a summary. So in notifications you got throughout the day, you can kind of get one summary of all your notifications rather than that endlessly scrolling list. And it's just not discoverable right now. If you want to clear notifications, you have to press and hold on the X and then it's like, gives you the option to clear all. It's like, I don't know why I, I, I most apps, I don't have that many apps installed on my phone anymore at all. And most of them aren't allowed to send me anything. So I don't have this problem, but I mean, if you get a lot of notifications or if you have work apps and you have to, I think this is a good feature. Uh, messages will also show when someone is away or busy. So this is kind of playing catch up. So I've never really been a Slack user. My wife used to use it in her old job. I think Slack is a disaster. And there was actually a job, uh, an article a while back talking about, I think there's Matt Taibbi interviewing someone talking about how Slack is destroying companies because that, that instant messaging is not only distracting, but it's leading to a lot more like really heated political conversations at work. Cause it's so easy to send people stuff and it's just driving people crazy. So you, and if you're in a group system, you can't really leave and you're getting notified about like political debates at work, which is not appropriate. So the idea that you can have an away busy system on messages is great. Uh, we have Google chat at Mount Royal. I, I put do not disturb or I'm away. And you know, my colleagues are really great to work with and they they see that. I mean, they know that if I'm away, I'm not going to respond. If it says busy, they typically don't send me anything or they'll send me an email instead. I think it's been a huge success. I think, um, it just makes sense. It's kind of like when someone closes their door to their office, right? Uh, they also have this thing for drawing boundaries. So this focus, they say, match your device with your current mindset. It's kind of like a mindfulness thing. You can set up multiple focuses. So there could have a work focus that would only notify, notify you about work-related apps. And I wasn't sure if this is based on time or day or location. You could have a family focus where you're only told about family stuff. Or, yeah, uh, you can create different kind of essentially do not disturb settings uh, and customize them. I, I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to work. There's also this live text feature, uh, which, oh, you, actually you talk about live text. Sorry. That's the next section. Sure. No problem. Um, so one thing we should mention a lot of these features that Apple they're about to, um, you know, that they did announce, they're going to probably take a place and come into effect in the fall with the, mm -hmm. the new uh, OS updates. Unless you want the beta. The public beta will be July. And the public beta, by the way, is usually pretty secure. I would not use the developer beta on your daily driver, folks. But if you really want to put it on as something, wait for the public beta. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, this live text thing, this, was, this seemed pretty cool. So basically what it would do is... Um, uh, translate written text notes or even it would take the you know you could actually take a picture of something that had text built within it and you could go and select that text 
and then go and use that text somewhere else and paste it into you know let's say a document or what have you so it's uh, it's obviously using like the AI algorithms to highlight some of that stuff um, so uh, yeah that was pretty cool I mean it kind of maybe even ties into this next thing with the, the spotlight where um, you know you can be able to search the photos and uh, the text within photos and just get some of that uh, rich contact uh, information as well within the images and I realized that the searching for text in photos will only work on Apple Silicon powered Macs. Oh, is that right? Not Intel. So most of these features will come to Intel and Apple Silicon, but you're already starting to see the divergence. Oh, I'm so sad. I still have the best Mac. They didn't introduce new MacBook Pros. Mine is still the best. <laughs> 2019 model, baby. We're in 2022. Still going strong. Good thing I bought it shortly after it came out. Um, there is some updates to photo memories. I didn't take a lot of notes on it. It's not really relevant to education. Uh, Apple wallet will have the ability to include keys to unlock hotel room doors. And they're also going to bring identity cards to Apple wallet, which I think is a little bit dystopian personally. I mean, I guess digital, uh, identity cards make sense though. I don't like the idea of having all my identity on my phone. Like, what if I get pulled over for a speeding ticket? Do I have to, like, bring up Apple Wallet so it has my driver's license? And then I have to give my phone to the cop? I'd rather just give him my card. I don't really want him walking off with a $1,000 phone. What if he drops it because he's like Butterfingers? Uh, anyways, <laughs> that's like, it's just something I think about, right? Like, it's, it, it's one point of failure. Um, Identity cards. I mean, maybe this will be used more for the COVID stuff. I mean, I, I can see reasons for it, but it's kind of like, uh, yeah, maybe a secondary example would make sense. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I feel like that's going to be a controversial one. Yeah. I mean, it was cool because it, it basically allowed you to go and uh, I mean, I, I've thought about this for probably like 15 years uh, you know you talk about this uh, dystopian future but like in the future most of the movies that we see they don't have identity cards anymore right like it's just a, i mean i don't know if facial recognition is the best way either but i i, I think this was kind of maybe like a, a precursor and a happy medium because you would go and let's say your driver's license take a picture of it it would scan it and then verify that that is actually a government issued ID. And then, you know, right. so, and the one thing I can tell you, like I, I might, I may not have, let's say I go and walk my dogs. I might not take my uh, driver's license with me, but you know, I'll have that phone with me in my pocket. So at least uh, I think as a secondary measure, maybe that's a, a better application. And I, I agree with you. I, I think even actually, Eric, like probably the better way uh, would be, I mean, they probably haven't even started introducing some of this functionality, but let's say in that example with the police officer, probably the better thing would be is if they had a device where you could just transmit or beam it over, or maybe they just scan it somehow into their device. And, and so they're not liable for your, I mean, you're talking about thousand, like uh, iPhones are like 1700 to maybe even 2000 bucks, depending on the Well, model. the cost of it is the cost of it is one thing i mean that's like a benign, benign example but like okay so remember that so let me let me uh talk a little let me let me turn this around so when i say dystopian i mean you have to have a digital identity card you're not allowed to have a plastic card anymore that's dystopian i don't have a problem with also having the cards that i choose on my phone yeah. but like i don't want to have to have a smartphone to have an identity 
that's a problem. Yeah. Because some sure. people, I don't like to take, I don't always take my phone traveling. I take my iPad. Um, sometimes I don't take my phone traveling. I mean, so, or sometimes I turn it all off or I delete all that stuff other than my air airplane tickets because I don't want my phone to get lost and then, and then have the data sucked out of my phone. It's a lot easier to protect a plastic card in a wallet. I put elastic band around my wallet and put it in my front pocket of my jeans. It's so hard to pull out a wallet, a leather wallet with an elastic band around it out of someone's pocket. I can barely do it and it's mine. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways to protect that stuff. I think it's more an issue. It's like, so here's the counter. I like Apple wallet for payment because it's a lot more secure than if I'm in a shady restaurant, not all restaurants are shady, but let's say I'm in one and it's my choice. You used to hand someone your credit card and they would just disappear with it. Take it around the corner and swipe it. Well, screw that. Like they're looking at my security code. They could take a picture of it. Like they go behind a curtain, like forget it. Right? Like, so Apple pay where you had to authenticate with a fingerprint and then it would only work and it would only transmit a unique token. So then your name and address and everything that's actually stored on that card doesn't go to the vendor. So they can also sell ads and data on the side. It was a great idea, but if I give, if I have to have a license on a phone and then the cop takes it into their car and they plug my phone into some like phone hacking device and then they suck all my photos off. And I mean, you see what people, law enforcement does with some of this stuff. It's kind of like, that's the problem I have. If it becomes a man, not mandatory, but that's the only solution. There should be always a fallback to have something that's non-digital. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I think it's a, it's a secondary kind of me, you know, nice to have. It's similar to like, a, you know, remember the other day that I was chatting with you and you didn't have your air miles card with you but you had it on your phone right and so and i forgot about it <laughs> <laughs> exactly right so it's buried in this digital list that's this infinite scrolling i have so many cards on apple wallet now that it's actually harder than when it was like i used to have a memory like okay like i open the wallet it's like in this pocket like this the scrolling list of cards like there's like at least 25 of those on my apple wallet uh, they're going to have to create something probably similar to how they created that app library. I hope so, because like a grid or something, because yeah. this is just killing me. Like all you get is that little sliver. It actually looks like a wallet, which is part of the problem, too. It's like that skeuomorphism didn't turn over very well. But anyways, yeah. uh, I will move on to uh, what do you want to talk about maps? Yeah, sure. Uh, so. Uh, this was kind of interesting, too, because they've uh, now updated uh, just how you can interact with the street view. Um, they had this uh, kind of nighttime glow. Uh, they had more uh, road details with uh, overhead uh, uh, view. And uh, you could also, uh, the one cool thing that I liked was where it was, it had like this 3D kind of thing. I mean, this personally has happened to me a number of times where especially... You know, uh, if you're going, let's say in the U.S., I don't know, maybe you're in Miami or uh, somewhere in California or something. And then I like the Miami example. That's a reoccurring theme with us. Yeah. So but, you know, you might have some overpasses or whatever. And then, you know, the, the Google Maps is telling you to go in whatever lane. And then all of a sudden there's like an overpass and you have to cut over like two or three lanes to get into that. Uh, so this was kind of interesting where it actually gave you a 3D representation of where the overpasses were. were. And so, you know, I, I thought that was pretty cool. And um, uh, also just even having that augmented reality live um, walking directions where you could go and uh, basically take your camera, open it up, 
and scan the environment and it would go and show you where you exactly are. I mean, in some ways we talked about this while the, because while this event was taking place, we were chatting back and forth, but I, I sometimes wonder if now we're actually making it almost like similar to like, um, you know, let's say a calculator. People don't know how to do basic, you know, division and multiplication. And now like I, this is literally, I I could see somebody if they're in a, uh, a town or whatever, and they, will not know how to read a map they won't know where north or south or whatever and it's like oh i gotta go and scan where this place is just to figure out where to go and turn so there's some research on that uh about people uh, uh I, you know i if i can find it i will follow up with the proper citation i don't like to just talk about research without having a good uh, verbal citation but it basically looked at I think it did brain scans of cab drivers in London, England, and looked at their brains. And year, I mean, these people are, I mean, if you ever taken a cab in London, England, these people are world-class. I mean, they're so good. I mean, these are real expert professionals. I mean, I have such high regard that they know every street, they know every one way, every lane that they're allowed to take their cab in. But their minds were wired as a result of learning that stuff and the years of experience in a way that was, they had this spatial memory uh, that was just so profoundly better than the average person would get in their lifetime because, of course, their vocation. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, there's something to be said about that. Like, I remember, for example, when Uber launched here in Calgary, uh, you know, one of my um, uh, friends was actually hopped into a car with uh, it was uh, like a Lexus with a young person, you know, from BC who had no idea of, uh, you know, Calgary and how to get around and was completely relying on GPS. And I mean, there's something to be said for somebody who has like 10, 15, 20 years of experience and knows every uh, road and how to bypass through rush hour traffic, because uh, as much mm-hmm. as we think this AI and, you know, Google Maps or whatever is the, the end all and be all, it's actually there's been stuff studies on this as well it's proven now it actually leads to further congestion because everybody's relying on that yeah i tend to take my own way i tend i mean if i've never been somewhere i may use maps the first time or a couple of times but i do try to turn it off uh, and go by memory there was a couple other things in maps there's this nighttime glow i don't remember how that worked is that just like a nighttime night effect like dark mode yeah i think so i think that's what it was yeah, so that was the only other one. There was some updates to the AirPods. So AirPods Pro and AirPods Pro Max, neither of which I own. I own the cheap AirPods for $220 Canadian. Apparently I don't get any of these features. Siri will read you all your notifications. Uh, I'm going to do a hard pass on that. I already find it profoundly irritating that Siri <laughs> already reads me messages. I finally figured out how to turn that off. It's just like, Jennifer says, can you please pick this up? I'm just like, oh man, the notification, I don't want it to actually dictate badly. And then it tries to describe the emojis that they use, like smiley face with tongue sticking out. It's like, this is a terrible system. So (laughs) I really don't like that. Uh, iPad OS. So I'll I'll just get this started with iPad OS. So widgets. So we've had widgets on iPad OS. Uh, If you're using the new uh, iOS, there's widgets you can put on the screen. Uh, Welcome to a feature that Android has had for 10 years. Um, Then now the widgets can go everywhere on the iPad. They can be comically large, like half a page, which I think is hilarious. Um, But, uh, you know, fair enough. 
also, we have the app library coming to the iPad, which again is kind of, I was very skeptical when app library came out as an organizational device for the phone, but I only kept a couple of folders on my phone, one for privacy and security that has like my two-factor authentication, LastPass, uh, some Firefox focus for blocking ads, but everything else I put into that app library, like why have a homepage of apps that I rarely open, right? Like, and it, it yeah. works really well. So uh, I've decluttered. It's been great. Yeah, I'm surprised it took a Apple this long to even do that because that was one of the most, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, just from an experience standpoint, it was so annoying to go and have to create your own folders and then, you know, move them around. And I mean, it should just be there just like any kind of, um, you know, uh, computer that you would have. But yeah, I mean, this is nice because now it's it's funny because a lot of what's happening now with Apple, they're basically almost kind of uh, it, there's a convergence going on between the iOS, uh, the iPad OS, and then also the Mac OS. And so there's uh, it's almost like the iPad is going to be very similar to what a computer will, or, or your actual Mac, right? Kind of. You, I mean, maybe you want to talk about the multitasking then. That's probably a good segue. I found it kind of underwhelming, to be personally honest. But yeah, I mean, it was because it's it's one of those things. Um, uh, it was kind of interesting. I mean, one thing that I kind of liked was that uh, you know you could actually go and share the screen, and I, I don't know if this is uh, uh, something that we. Uh, no, it's not later on, but uh, you could actually go and share stuff from your Mac and drag it over into your iPad. The cursor. Yeah, that like, was pretty cool. That, that was cool. I thought that part was really cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you talk about the actual multitasking between the different apps, it wasn't really anything super awesome, uh, like from a functionality yeah. standpoint, but it, it was nice to have. I mean, at least uh, you can go and, you know, switch from apps, which... Uh, uh, it's somewhat similar to what you would have in Mac, but not really. But obviously, it's a different uh, interface. But it's a bit more discoverable, I think. I mean, because people do ask me, could I use an iPad for work? I'm an educator. Yeah, I mean, especially if you have the big iPad, I think it's great. It does multitasking well. But the problem isn't that it doesn't work. It's that it's not very discoverable. So, for instance, if you want, you say you have Slack full screen on a 13-inch iPad. Okay, well, now you want to have something so it splits the screen in half. You'd have to drag something from the dock. Well, then that means you have to add an app to the dock to drag it half the screen. That's a stupid idea. The original multitasking used to be a, a menu that you swiped over from the left-hand or right-hand side, and it gave you this like infinite scrolling list of every app installed. It took forever to find one. That was no good. So now you can kind of add apps side by side from the multitasking menu um, and there's also like an app shelf and that kind of i guess that works like the app library right I, or the, I, the app library is an icon it's no longer a home screen like you bring it up as like a like the ipad right or yeah. the mac yeah and i i think the, the shelf uh, kind of thing it, uh, it's almost i would Multiple probably groups yeah like i would kind of describe it like on the mac where you can kind of minimize something down at the bottom in your dock, yeah. right? Like that. But minim you can also minimize, like if you have Safari next to Google Chat, that double app side by side is in the shelf. And then you can yeah. have like Google Chat next to Gmail. So you can have like multiple instances of the app side by side with other apps. So you can almost like create multiple workspaces that are predefined, which I thought was neat. But I think 
How do you, is that all at the bottom though? Like, how do you find that again? That's, that's kind of my, was my impression that it was going to be at the bottom. And then I, okay. I guess the only other thing that it's somewhat similar to like, let's say in the Mac environment where you can go and split that screen. But I think your biggest problem is that your actual real estate on that screen is so small. Plus then just how yeah. do you, how you interact with it? It's uh, you don't have the same, I mean, they're going to have to kind of somehow figure out some new way of, uh, you know, especially cause you have the pencil or maybe it's some like pinches or something gestures or something that there there should be a better way anyways yeah i don't know if they're going to do overlapping windows on the ipad ever and i don't know that that would be necessary it's, it's interesting so i was listening to the twit podcast about ipad multitasking and they said that young people who've grown up with touch love the ipad it just makes sense to them because they didn't have overlapping windows and a mouse and keyboard growing up or we are used to that but we've learned how to use this other thing so i wonder I got the impression from Apple that they're not going to anytime soon have an OS that runs on all devices until, you know, I guess enough of us old timers die and then we don't want to use that kind of stuff anymore or something. But it seems like they're just trying to make them more compatible with each other. So you can choose whatever one you want, but then you can switch between them easier. I think that makes more sense than what uh, Microsoft did, which was trying to make Windows work everywhere. And I find... Uh, I've used tablets They use Windows 10, but man, those icons are real small and it's just not very well designed for a finger. So I can kind of understand where there's some tension. Yeah. Uh, did you want to talk about notes? You're the notes expert. You're like the Apple notes master. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting. They've got some like good uh, uh, new functionality. So for example, one thing that they've done, it's, uh, it's almost maybe somewhat similar to like the iMessage uh, in the last uh, iteration or upgrade to it, but you can actually go and tag people in it, which is kind of nice. And then it'll notify them. Um, you know, you can also see if there, what type of changes might've been made to shared notes. Uh, you can tag the add tags to the notes just to kind of find um, whatever you're looking at. I mean, I I was checking even today. I, I have like over a thousand notes in my notes really? app. So, oh, in macro. Uh, so I I guess I just uh, that might be my way of journaling as we we were talking about. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, maybe you might want to talk about like these quick and swift uh, codes and stuff. Yeah, like so they have uh you could see changes that were made in the notes. So you can add text. You're talking about the notes. Yeah, quick note is uh so I don't know if I think this was on the Mac and the iPhone and the iPad. So we're not at the Mac OS stuff, but a lot of these features are coming to all of them because they're all running Apple processors. So quick note was that you could take the pencil or your finger and you could swipe from, they showed it from the bottom right. So let's say you're on, you have Safari or a web browser open and you swipe from the bottom right, it will create a note and automatically embed the link from the web page that you're on. It's context sensitive. So the idea is, is that you would bring that note up to make a note about whatever else you have on the screen at that time. And then you can minimize the note, go back to what you're doing and you can bring it back up again. So you can kind of swift back and go back and forth. That was pretty cool. Uh, oh, one thing on here that's not at all related to notes that I put in notes is called Swift Code. So Swift Playgrounds, which is uh, the Swift programming language that Apple uh, uses for their own app 
development that replaced uh, Objective C, which was around for like 20 years. I'm burned that I learned Objective C, but that's okay. Um, a Swift code is basically a platform, so you can make apps, you can write apps on the iPad and submit them to the App Store. That's yeah, and I, huge. And I don't I, know what else to say. I, I was kind of blown away with by it because uh, even it, they had um, like through that Swift playgrounds and stuff, like you could actually go and develop an app, learn how to build an app. So even if you don't know how to use Swift, it, it has all the tutorials there. And then you can go and do it on your iPad, both for the uh, iPhone as well as for the iPad, and then actually publish it to the App Store, which was awesome. And uh, from just my sense, just from what they were demonstrating, I don't even think you need much of a programming background to be able to do it. It was very, uh, you know, for made for almost anybody. We'd have to be able to use Swift, I guess. You'd have to program in that. Yeah, but again, they have the resources to allow you to do it. And plus, uh, I, I think a lot of it, it was, uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, it's becoming like a new trend. Like there's a lot of, uh, that's one of the things that in our, uh, the technology for entrepreneurs or that um, uh, technologies of innovation, that was a course that we were teaching, uh, where we, there's this new uh, kind of uh, revolution of no code tools that are coming out. So I think in the future, probably what's going to happen it really even who knows, maybe even the programming side isn't going to be a big deal. It's going to probably be more a matter of figuring out uh, how your users are interacting in the human centered design and user interface usability side of shortcuts kind of works like that yeah. for automation, right? I mean, yeah. Apple shortcuts in many ways is the modern no code version. I mean, you can script in it with JavaScript, but I mean, Apple Automator is far more code heavy than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they did some also some interesting privacy stuff. I don't know if I missed anything, but uh, for mail, it's going to hide your IP address and also block like those things are kind of hidden in email HTML, like the JavaScript. And uh, I don't remember how it works. Yeah. Hide IP address from trackers in safari and then also hide your ip address in mail i think yeah and then i, I guess the other thing is um it, with if you have if you're using icloud one thing that was kind of cool is that um, you could actually create fake accounts that uh that was great yeah so yeah. that was kind of awesome um and then you can you know disable them afterwards as well so uh, if let's say you need to sign up for some account or some subscription for some limited time offer or whatever like, <laughs> like you were talking about even today uh you know you got that um amazon kind of certificate or whatever but that's where you could use your little fake account redeem whatever you need and then afterwards when uh, you're ready just delete it yeah, that's a great point. I would love to be able to create temporary email addresses. I'm hoping that Proton Mail, which is my mail provider, does that at some point. Um, yeah, I, I like that idea of being able to create multiple. I don't know. It was pretty compelling. I would, and you could use custom domains now with uh, Apple's email, uh, iCloud email. So that's compelling. It's like, should I switch from Proton Mail to Apple Mail? I don't think I will. I like Proton Mail. It's hosted. Uh, you know, part of the thing is, is that they have a lot of privacy stuff it's, it really, for people out there who are interested in privacy and securing data, you know, it really comes down to encryption. Apple has their own standard encryption. They hold the keys. It's better to have some sort of open source 
version from a hackability standpoint. Apple is more like we wouldn't know if they were compromised, but that that's a long uh, that's a story for another time. They had some stuff in iCloud uh, recovery contact. So if you can't log into your account, they had the digital legacy. So if you die, you pass on your stuff, your digital content um, to somebody else in your family, which is dark, but also becoming a real thing. Like, what am I going to do with my digital stuff when I inherit it? Right. There's not really a lot of legacy ideas for this. Actually, I, I, I really like that um, recovery, um, you know, functionality mm-hmm. because, um, you know, now you don't have to rely on somebody else uh, or even the company itself. But, you know, if you have your, you know, significant other or maybe a sister or brother or whatever, it'll go and send the code to them. I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I thought about that years ago as well, like when I was thinking, OK, how how would you be able to go and, you know, retrieve your information, but do it in a way where uh, you're not, you um, having to be um, you know compromised or if somebody could hack into it and that that would take... I'm gonna set you as my recovery contact yeah sure there you go <laughs> but Chris. yeah but even this digital legacy thing it's uh, it's something that uh, you know we probably never thought about this but you know especially imagine you know god forbid some somebody passes away or whatever and there might be even some critical information or some pictures or whatever that's uh, uh, there and you know you you want to have access to well my my uh, password manager does this so my wife has access to my password manager and logins when i'm dead that sounds so morbid but yeah that's true um privacy relay so a bunch of this stuff is going to come to apple icloud they renamed it i don't remember i'm going to get it because i pay for apple icloud extra storage i think so privacy relay is essentially their vpn kind of plus tor um i won't go into the details of that but it's a way to connect securely on the web so you don't have to you know if you connect to a public wi-fi spot you're not going to get hacked Uh, there's a hide my email uh, so that's what you said, set up other addresses and delete them. And then there's a HomeKit secure video. So if you have a video camera connected to HomeKit, uh, it's encrypted and also doesn't count against any video footage that you stored in the cloud doesn't count against your storage. I'm going to skip by watchOS. They had some really interesting stuff around brain health, mental health, uh, reflect I don't know what to say that's useful to education. So I think we can probably move on to Mac OS if you're okay with that. All right. Sounds good. Uh, did you, was there anything on that Siri that I think we kind of glanced over, but Siri, uh, no more voice types, uh, and then more voice commands that you can create offline. Yeah. That's about it. So you want to kick off macOS for us? Yeah, so macOS uh, Monterey, uh, one of the things we've already kind of touched upon this, but this universal control where you can actually, and I thought that was really cool kind of feature where you can take uh, and not have multiple uh, mice and keyboards and things, but you can have uh, the MacBook or iMac actually go and, uh, you know, figure out and you could take your mouse pointer and drag it into your iPad. And it was kind of, you could even have like multiple, like uh, imagine you string along. We were thinking like, I don't know how far <laughs> along it could go, but uh, imagine you had a Mac, uh, uh, MacBook, you had an iMac, then you have like an iPad. It, it seemed to be able to go and just drag across multiple devices, which was kind of uh, very cool. 
Yeah, I'm kind of curious to know what the lag will be like. And it was so weird when you brought they brought it. They had a MacBook Air, and then to the right of it, they had an iPad Pro, and they dragged into it. And the the pointer is, of course, the arrow on Mac, and then it's that circle to simulate a finger on uh, iPad OS. And it looked like it was breaking through, like it you drag it over and then it was like kind of a bulge and then you had to push it. And then it, it was like something going through a membrane. It was like the weirdest you had to like, almost that was how it like authenticated almost, uh, to say this is the right device. I don't know what happens if you move it from side to side, move your devices around if they understand, but that uh, was interesting. Uh, they had airplay to Mac. I thought this was cool. So for anybody who wants to use their Mac from their phone or their other device to play content, I have airplay on my smart TV so I can actually stream. I don't know if it's video, but audio, anything I can just stream it right to the television. Um, they also had automation. So I'll cover that only because I talked about it earlier. So shortcuts which is the automation tool for iPad and iOS is coming to the Mac. So this is an interesting thing. So uh, Automator, Mac Automator, which has been around for over 20 years, is going to live along side by side with shortcuts as part of this multi-year transition. I guess Automator is going to be going away. It makes me so sad. In many ways, it's much more powerful than shortcuts. So I hope that they uh, transfer all the features over. Um, yeah, it's just it's kind of it's kind of sad, but I think it brings automation to more people. Yeah, for sure. And then I guess they made some changes to Safari, where um, uh, it looked like a, the interface was a little bit more clutter-free. Um, you know, uh, more reduced. You had some tab groups and stuff. Um, uh, and as uh, we were kind of commenting, it kind of almost looks like there's this other web browser called Opera. Uh, and then the other thing is that they're going to be bringing web extensions to the iPhone and iPad as well. Mm-hmm. So that wraps it up. This is, uh, we're an hour and 33 minutes in today or around that. I do, this may be uh, edited down a bit, but this is probably a good transition actually into our ed tech tips. That's pretty much the uh, iOS, the WWDC stuff. We'll put some of this, I don't know if I'm going to put all these in the show notes, but, uh, I'll link to the changes or the, the re, I'll link to the W uh, the WWDC keynote. How's that? That's a little bit more uh, reasonable for people. I'd recommend watching it. There was a couple ed tech tips uh, we had today. Um, I guess I'm, I might, I guess I'm talking about these. That's fine. Uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot, but the first one is a, is a tool from UC Berkeley called privacy bot. So I I've only started to play with this. Uh, I think you have to install it more or less from the, command line but it's essentially done by the Inf- school of information since the library school essentially so privacy bond is a simple way to start exercising your privacy rights they claim uh, it is a free and open source way to delete your data from an exhaustive list of data brokers and people search sites so it's this fully open source local only program that automatically routes data delete requests to data brokers and data search sites. So user experience, research reports, the current CCPA process and feedback. And then their website talks about their methodology, basically removes you um, from being uh, constantly having your data sucked up and stored uh, at private companies. I think it's a brilliant tool just because we've talked about privacy in the past. uh, Something that if you, especially if you're an educator, you're, you're going to a lot of different websites. You're searching for a lot of stuff, sometimes for research purposes. 
uh, occasionally you want to wipe that. So this is a really great tool. Along those privacy lines, I also wanted to alert folks to Firefox 89. So um, I worked through a bunch of browsers. I don't use Chrome that much. On Windows, I've used Microsoft Edge, which is based on Chrome. Uh, on the Mac side and the Windows side, I also tend to use Firefox. So Firefox has doesn't have quite the user base that it used to. It's 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 been the laggard, but Firefox 89 is a massive visual update. Uh, really modernizes the browser, really cleans things up. I would say Firefox 89, which I I manually installed it, runs way faster and gets way better battery life. It's almost on par with using Safari. Uh, if you use a Mac, but on the Windows side, it's the same thing. It is a truly huge update. Uh, just a really cleaned up modern interface. Runs super, super great. Uh, and Firefox 89 is a very privacy-focused Firefox, like they all are. And starting with Firefox 90, which will be coming shortly, there's a feature that's interesting. So one of the things that uh, Mozilla said is that they find that well, Firefox is and many browsers are supposed to update in the background, sometimes really large updates don't. And then if you use multiple browsers or if you're an infrequent Firefox user, let's say you keep Firefox around for some things, but you primarily use Chrome by the time you start it up, uh, it tends to be super out of date because you haven't used it for a long time. So what they're doing now, Firefox 89 is the visual design, but keep uh, posted for Firefox 90. They have a really interesting tool once Firefox 90 is installed, what it'll do is that even when the app isn't open, it'll check for updates every seven hours. Uh, the reason seven hours rather than eight is because eight hours is kind of our clock. So seven is a prime number and it's also an odd number. So that means that the, the times every seven hours is going to change. So the likelihood of it staying up to date, meaning that your computer's on, it's not asleep, um, you know, you have a good internet connection at some point with over a couple of days, you're always going to be updated to the latest version. So they're doing some really interesting things to keep people up to date. Uh, the last tip I have is because this is kind of the end of the year wrap up, people are either going to conferences, they're finishing research or they're, uh, you know, maybe taking some vacation time this year. I purchased, uh, for one year access to a new streaming service called curiosity stream, which is all, uh, all education. So it has a bunch of David Attenborough stuff has a really cool series on the birth of the internet and all the internet protocols has a great set of uh, videos about all of the development of all the Mars Land Rovers. I've been watching those. I've watched about like 10 episodes of all these different documentaries about how they developed the Mars Rovers and stuff like that. So I just wanted to put that out there for people who wanted uh, an education streaming service, since this is an education technology podcast, uh, that that might be helpful to them. And that's pretty much what we have for you today. Uh, Chris, did you want to tell people how they could get in contact with you? Sure. Uh, so you can go to my personal website, which is uh, Chris with a K, so K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S uh, dot C-A. And uh, you can also reach me on Twitter uh, at Chris Hans. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can reach me on Twitter at E-G Christensen. Uh, my website is Eric, E-R-I-K, uh, Christensen, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N dot net. EricChristensen.ca will also forward to that. And I also blog, though apparently not since December, at tech, 
dash B-Y-T-E-S. So that's techbytes.net. I think that's about a wrap today. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, thank you. It's been awesome. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hall, the audio producer for EdTechExamined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.